The Irish writer James Joyce spent much of his life in Paris, and like any Parisian expat worth their salt, he relished the various pleasures of the city, fashionable clothing, beautiful art, and gourmet food. Though often on the knife edge of poverty, he was exuberantly generous, always covering the bill whenever he would party with his friends. But underneath this bon vivant exterior was an unbelievably determined artist. He was an extremely serious person. He identified his vocation very early on and then poured pretty much all of his energy into it. So, you know, people think Ulysses is an intimidating book, and it is, but Joyce worked very hard to write it. Perhaps more than any other book, Ulysses has the reputation of being difficult. It is dense, elusive, and often hard to follow. But Joyce wasn't trying to be challenging for its own sake, or because he sadistically wanted to punish future students assigned his book. Quite the contrary. With Ulysses, Joyce wanted to explore and convey what it is to be alive. And just like his book, life is difficult and confusing, but also thrilling and joyful. He said something like, if Ulysses isn't fit to be read, life isn't fit to be lived. <laughs> and this says a lot about his aims in Ulysses, you know, that he's not out to just shock, you know, he's not out merely to provoke. He's actually really interested in people's experience, their ordinary everyday experience, and representing that. And this was something unprecedented at the time. Obviously, novelists were very interested in people's experience, but had not represented it in all of its gritty detail in the sort of moment-to-moment -moment quality of being a person in a body, um, having various kinds of uh, thoughts, uh, feelings, physical needs, etc. So it's something new with this book. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Catherine Flynn to discuss Ulysses. Let's learn about James Joyce himself. Um, could you take us through his life um, and what you think it was that prepared him to be the kind of writer who could push literature forward the way he did? Joyce was born in a, an upper-middle-class family that then experienced a, a turnaround in their uh, economic status. Um, his father lost his job. It was connected to problems, political problems in Ireland. Uh, his father also drank a lot. Uh, and he gradually moved down through a series of um, professions. His family struggled to stay afloat financially. They'd frequently fall into debt or be unable to pay rent. Moneylenders constantly hounded them. And so Joyce, as a child, saw very different extremes of Dublin. Affluent, comfortable, upper-middle-class Dublin, and also working-class Dublin, um, poorer areas of Dublin. And that, I think, made him capable of understanding society in a very complex way. Joyce's early life was somewhat chaotic due to his father's unstable finances. But nonetheless, he was a very gifted student and excelled in school. In his early teens, he attended a boarding school run by Jesuits. And so they really instilled in him 
a love of um, precision in language, um, a love of learning as well. Joyce had a very Catholic upbringing, an upbringing that shaped him profoundly, but that he would ultimately push back against. Joyce grew up in Catholic Ireland, and he really rebelled against that. But it gave him a discourse and a set of imagery and, you know, a whole sort of philosophical um, approach that he was able to reappropriate and turn to new ends in, in his writing. When he was 16, Joyce attended University College Dublin, where he studied English, French, and Italian. He fell in love with the works of Norwegian playwright Henrik Ibsen and published a review of one of Ibsen's plays. Around this time, Joyce himself wrote a couple plays and published a few articles in local newspapers. After graduating from college, Joyce headed to Paris to study medicine. He stays in Paris for four months and then is called back to Dublin because his mother is dying. So he stays there for another year or so and he meets Nora Barnacle. They fall in love and they decide to elope to Europe. And so they want to go to Paris, but there's no work there for him. He um, and ends up teaching at an English school in Trieste, Trieste, uh, modern Italy, but back then in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Throughout this time, Joyce was working on his first novel, a portrait of the artist as a young man. The story follows Joyce's literary alter ego, Stephen Daedalus, as he explores what it means to become an artist. Joyce began working on the story in 1904, shortly before he and Barnacle left Ireland. Joyce and Barnacle stayed in Trieste for about 10 years, until World War I broke out. When the war breaks out, they go to Zurich, and in neutral Switzerland. And then when the war ends, they go back to Trieste, but things are very hard economically there. And he goes, at the advice of Ezra Pound, to Paris in 1920, and he stays there for the rest of his life, pretty much, except for the last year or so, when they have to flee the Germans and they go back to Zurich. And so his life is, um, it's a strange mixture of kind of bourgeois and bohemian. So he, uh, as soon as he possibly can, he stops working. He finds a sponsor uh, in Harriet Shaw Weaver. And uh, he, you know, he gets, he's very good at getting money from people, but he is getting money from sponsors uh, because they know that he's producing important work. But it's not like he's frugal with it. Like they go out to dinner, they buy nice clothes, they have a great time. Um, so they love eating out. But they also have, uh, you know, there's a story of someone visiting them in their in their flat in Paris and they're sitting on the floor with a roast chicken between them. <laughs> so it's very, it's very strange, you know. I mean, he likes maybe the trappings of a kind of um, successful sort of upper middle class person. Like he has himself photographed in a, a velvet smoking jacket, but that's not how he lives necessarily, you know, all the time. Do you know much about his work day as a, as a writer? Well, he liked to work with his family around him. So Nora Barnacle, his partner, and his two kids were, were usually around and he would sit on a bed um, or sprawled in a chair, writing on pieces of paper. And there was no desk. There was no quiet, you know, uh, writerly solitude. So he was loaned an apartment in Paris in the early 20s by Valérie Larbeau, who had this beautiful writing room. And uh, Joyce just couldn't write in there. He needed the noise. He needed activity. 
he he took inspiration from the, the kind of ambient sound environment, the verbal environment that he lived in. Um, he was always someone who was uncomfortable creating out of nothing and was always adapting, adapting his own previous writings or adapting what he heard on the street or what he found in literature. So he was constantly combining and superimposing and editing, and adding. Um, it's a very accretive style. It's really not about retreating into solitude and having the muses visit you out of, you know, out of emptiness. That's, it's, that's the complete opposite. One of his inspirations was the political struggles of his day. So Joyce, as a child, experienced the aftermath of the fall of Charles Stuart Parnell. So he was a crucial Irish statesman who represented Ireland in London and was campaigning for home rule for Ireland. So this was, you know, a parliamentary strategy to gain some degree of autonomy for Ireland so that it would be ruled from Dublin as it had been for a period um, in the 18th century. In 1801, decades before Joyce was born, Ireland joined Great Britain in a union called the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. Many Irish people opposed this union and wanted the Irish people to rule Ireland, not the British government. This home rule movement grew over the century, and by the late 1800s, tension over the issue was high. Charles Stuart Parnell was one of the home rule movement's key voices. He sought greater Irish sovereignty through peaceful negotiation with the British government. His campaign was almost successful. He was on the brink of being able to persuade the parliament in London to vote for an Irish parliament in Dublin. But his affair with a married woman was exposed and he fell from grace in a massive scandal. The scandal wasn't really as bad as it sounds. The woman was separated from her husband. But in deeply Catholic Ireland, it was seen nonetheless as adultery. A lot of Parnell's supporters turned against him, and his mission in the parliament failed. And so that, that created a kind of um, political vacuum in Ireland, or a collapse of hope um, and vision. News of Parnell's affair surfaced in late 1889, when Joyce was just a child. And so he grew up in that vacuum, when the nationalism symbolized by the Home Rule movement had grown stagnant and the vision for the future was unclear. But the fight for Irish independence was far from over. New nationalist groups and movements emerged, some of them more willing to use violence. The 1916 Rising happens, which is uh, brutally squashed, but it, um, the, that, that brutality, in fact, inspires people, and then the War of Independence begins a few years later. Around 1914, in the middle of this political turbulence, Joyce began writing his masterpiece, Ulysses. So Joyce sets Ulysses in 1904, long before that happened. So at this moment of relative quietness in Ireland, and what he shows is um, the various traces of history on the country and this sort of um, range of attitudes, this, these, all of these attempts that are in, in people's minds. You know, this... Um, uh, these kind of nationalist ambitions and uh, efforts and energies are all present in the book, which makes it a little difficult, you know, because you see it as a Dubliner sees it, which is largely unexplicit. You know, all of these references are made and it's assumed the reader will understand them. 
Um, but that's how you, that's how people are as historical subjects. You know, their minds are filled with the past in a way that is often in Kuwait and not uh, consciously expressed and often not fully understood. And so the reader gets exposed to that complex historical background when they read Ulysses. How do you explain to somebody what this book is about? This is a book about being a person in the modern world and where there are no easy answers. Um, every day we're confronted with all kinds of questions, you know, what to think, what to believe, how to act. There's so many options because tradition has weakened. You know, we're free to a large extent of tradition. We can opt into it if we want, but we, but if we choose to. And so the book is about the, the issue of autonomy in a way, the problem of autonomy. Um, and how that kind of reflects in various ways on what it is to be a person, um, what it is to, to think, think for yourself, about the reader as well. Like it, it has a kind of complicated attitude towards the reader or it refuses to give the reader simple answers. Um, and the book is about the anxiety um, and the questions that arise given the collapse of tradition and of authorities of various kinds, but also the promise and the potential and the excitement in that moment of collapse. Like, we can remake the world. How should we remake it? And Ulysses demonstrates that as a novel, in that it's a remaking of the novel, or a book that remakes the novel many times. Ulysses is stylistically experimental, changing shape and form constantly. Joyce structured the story into three books and 18 chapters, or episodes, as he called them. So there's a sort of a, a style, an initial style, Joyce scholars call it, for the first, say, 11 episodes. I mean, there's always little exceptions in there. And that's already a major reinvention of the novel. And then episode 12, it just starts to kind of go crazy. Like it just reinvents itself over and over and over again. And so that's hard but once you start to think about it as um, a kind of joyful exploration of possibilities, then as a reader, you can have fun. You can, st uh, you can go on this kind of wild ride with the book. The story begins with the character of Stephen Daedalus, who was the main character in Joyce's first novel, A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. So he has the first three chapters. Um, it's pretty mundane. He's having breakfast with these, a friend of his who's kind of a frenemy and an Englishman who's staying with them. He goes and teaches a class in, at a school he's working, where he's working. He teaches it pretty badly. He talks to the headmaster. Uh, it's a very unsatisfying conversation. And he goes and walks on the beach. So those are the first three episodes. <laughs> and then we have Bloom. And so the novel resets at chapter four, starts again at 8 a.m. And we see another breakfast. Um, two breakfasts in a way, the breakfast Bloom has himself and the breakfast he cooks for his wife, who's upstairs, um, Molly Bloom. And then Bloom sets off out of the house and wanders around Dublin for most of the day, um, taking care of some business. He's an advertising agent. He's trying to secure an ad in the newspaper. He gets a fee for commissioning ads with a particular newspaper. And so he's trying to negotiate the terms. He's trying to design the ad. And, but he also, you know, he goes and buys soap. He thinks about taking a bath. 
he does take a bath. We don't see that. He um, has various meals. He runs into Dubliners he knows. He um, goes to a maternity hospital because he's um, uh, worried about this woman he knows who's been in labor for three days. And he meets Stephen Dedalus there, who's drinking with some medical students. And he's concerned for Stephen. And he follows them to the red light district because he wants to look after Stephen in some way. Bloom barely knows Stephen Dedalus. He knows Stephen's father well and met Stephen when he was a young boy. But now, Bloom is 38 and Stephen is in his early 20s. But perhaps because Bloom and his wife lost their only baby 10 years earlier, Bloom sees Stephen sort of like a surrogate son. This dynamic motivates Bloom to follow Stephen to the red light district. Stephen is incredibly drunk at that stage. And um, Bloom protects him from being ripped off by the brothel owner. And then when they go outside, Stephen manages to insult a British soldier who hits him and... They're about, he's about to be arrested. Stephen passes out, and while he's unconscious, Bloom and a friend manage to get him off the hook. When Stephen wakes up, Bloom invites him over to his house for some hot cocoa. They drink this cocoa together in the kitchen. They go out into the back garden and they, they urinate side by side. And uh, Bloom has offered Stephen a bed for the night, but Stephen refuses and he heads off. He heads out into the darkness. We don't know where he's going to sleep because he has decided not to go back to the tower that he was renting, that he was sharing with this friend. And um, so it's a big question. We don't know what will happen. Bloom has these ideas that Stephen will maybe teach Molly Italian, because Molly is a singer, and it would be great for her to know more Italian, um, or that, that something will happen with him. Uh, but we don't know. And then Bloom goes upstairs to bed, the major plot point of Ulysses comes up, which has been on Bloom's mind all day in fragmentary ways. Um, but it's that Molly is having an affair. So Molly on this day, Ulysses is set in one day. And this is the day that Molly sleeps for the first time with another Dubliner called Blazes Boylan, a kind of man about town, a bit of a dandy. He's well off. Um... Bloom refers to him as the worst man in Dublin uh, because he's maybe a bit of a womanizer. He's a confirmed bachelor. And so he suspects that they're going to sleep together. How did he know the affair was, you know, imminent or possible? Was Molly not even bothering to, to hide evidence? So after their baby boy died, Bloom went off sexual intercourse, like full sexual intercourse. He was interested in certain sexual relations with Molly, um, but not actually intercourse. And so, you know, this could be Molly's way of bringing him back, you know, provoking him. Um, and, uh, um, but he, he knows, he sees in, at the beginning of the novel that she's gotten a letter from Blazes Boylan that she hides and he asks her about it and she says he's coming around at 4 p.m. with the program for a concert tour that they're going to go on the following week. And so Bloom just suspects, you know, and he's right. He's correct. He's, you know, his suspicions aren't confirmed until the end of the book, but he is correct. So the plot 
insofar as there is one, really revolves around this suspicion and ultimate confirmation of the infidelity of Molly. It does, uh, except that uh, the, in a way it's centered on Bloom's acceptance of the affair. So he doesn't know how he's going to respond ultimately, but he lets it happen. He fantasizes about it happening. We realize that there's even some pleasure attached to that. We see that he is, he uh, feels that it's important to Molly. He thinks at times, um, you know, why, why do women, or why do it to stay young? You know, she must. And uh, he knows that he's abandoned her in a certain way. And that, you know, he thinks of women's bodies like musical instruments that have to be played in order to be alive. And this sounds very objectifying, but he means it from the woman's perspective. Um, so it's about a kind of non-possessiveness. That is really, I think, at the center of the book. We still don't know at the very end what he's going to do. He's, you know, even as he's getting into bed, he's thinking over various feelings and strategies. But he is, his love for Molly is deeper than any kind of um, requirement of fidelity, actually. And it's a, it's a real answer to the, the way women were thought of at the time. You know, he, he was very influenced by Ibsen, uh, Heinrich Ibsen. And um, he felt that Ibsen, uh, Ibsen put at the center of his work the transformation of relations between men and women and the um, refusal to continue the idea that a woman was a possession of a man um, or an instrument of a man. Um, and so Molly is certainly not a possession or an instrument. She's very much an autonomous person. And Bloom admires that in her. Ulysses is best known for its unique literary style. Joyce wanted to capture the feeling of being inside one's head with one's own thoughts. His prose reflects the speed and connections thoughts have as they emerge and ricochet through our minds. So the initial style is third-person narration mixed with stream of consciousness um, or free and direct discourse, which is slightly kind of at a further remove. But there's a lot of stream of consciousness in the book, but not all of it. Um, is written in that style, in that narrative mode. Episode 12 um, doesn't really have stream of consciousness. It's tiny little fragments. It's mainly a first-person narration, a first-person narrative, and then these um, parodic accounts. Um, episode 13 is written in a kind of parody of Victorian sentimental novels and, and women's magazines. And so it's this extremely... Joyce calls it a marmalady style, namby-pamby, drawersy, marmalady style. And uh, it's very entertaining. Um, episode 14 takes consecutively the forms of English literary language as it evolves. So it starts off in a kind of Anglo-Saxon, Irish Gaelic, and then, and then ends up with a kind of street argot, a kind of mishmash. But it goes through everything like Dickens and Trollope and everything in between. Episode 15 is written in the form of a play script with what Joyce called exploding visions. These hallucinatory moments where buttons speak and, you know, objects speak, things come to life, but also people change form. Um, the brothel keeper becomes a man. She was a woman. She becomes a man. And Bloom himself 
is regendered in some confusing way. Um, and uh, he changes costume many, many times. So it's really a strange episode. Um, the following episode is written in a kind of uh, tired English that's full of cliche and sort of malapropisms that's very funny uh, once you get an ear for it. And then there's an episode that's written in the form of Q&A, a kind of catechism. And then the final episode is um, Molly's interior monologue. It's um, just this flow of her words, her thoughts, that is basically eight sentences, but very, very long sentences. And, you know, it, there's a, just a tiny bit of punctuation. You can break it down into smaller sentences, but you have to make those decisions yourself. So it's so so you can see how diverse the forms of the book are. Maybe we could talk about the connection to the Odyssey now. What do you think is important for readers to appreciate about that connection? Joyce takes one of the greatest of classical texts and reshapes it, uses it to make something very new. So people often talk about Ulysses as an epic of the everyday. And that's, you know, often where people start. They say it's it's loosely modeled on Homer's Odyssey, um, but it's focused on ordinary people, you know, lower middle class people and their mundane activities. So Bloom is Odysseus. Odysseus in the Odyssey is he's a king. He's a warrior. He's a master strategist. He wins the Trojan War for the Greeks. But um, Bloom is someone who's he's not very successful in life. His wife is cheating on him. He's an outsider. Like his father was Jewish and a Hungarian immigrant to Ireland. And so Bloom has, you know, he's certainly not a person of high status. And this is a major gesture that Joyce makes against traditional hierarchies and traditional ways of understanding what a protagonist, who a protagonist needs to be and who a hero needs to be. Um, and so this is one way of thinking about it. And the Odyssey is also about fidelity. And famously, Penelope comes up with all these strategies to keep the suitors at bay. She tells them she won't marry anyone until she's weaved a shroud for her father her father-in-law, but she unweaves the tapestry every night. So she's buying herself time. Um, and uh, Penelope is 100% faithful to, to Odysseus. Um, but Molly really isn't. So this shows you how the Odyssey is a kind of foil for Ulysses. It allows us to see Ulysses by contrast in lots of ways. So it's, very fun, it's really fun to look for the Homeric parallels but often those are those pose more questions than provide answers. Let's talk now about how readers responded and in the public when it came out. Um, what was the what was the initial reception to the text? So um, Ulysses was published partially in serial form in the Little Review. So the Little Review was a small literary journal that published excerpts of Ulysses starting in 1918. And in 1920, they got to episode 13 and suddenly someone reported them, um, reported the book for obscenity. There was a complaint made to the secretary of the New York Society for the Prevention of Vice. <laughs> and so um, subsequently, a panel of judges ruled that the novel was obscene and uh, it was effectively banned in America. 
And it made it very hard for Joyce to publish the book. So he, he it looked like it was going to be published in, in New York, but then he refused to make any changes. And so he was dropped. And lucky for him, lucky for us, Sylvia Beach, who owned the Shakespeare and Company bookstore in Paris, decided to print it herself under the name of Shakespeare and Company. And um, so she did that, bringing it out in 1922. And it was it was celebrated. Uh, people were shocked, but but really, it, people in Paris, where it was launched, loved it. Um, obviously, the Parisians knew nothing about the Dublin context, or very little, but they really enjoyed what Joyce was doing. And uh, however, it took a long time to really take hold. Ulysses was eventually published in its entirety in the United States, and it has now been translated into over 20 languages worldwide. With Ulysses, Joyce redefined what a novel can be, and he did so in such a profound way that it is hard for contemporary fiction writers to escape its influence. What Joyce said is, we can no longer write a traditional novel. Like, 19th century realism is a convention that we have to move on from, that we have to really question and play with. And uh, he invented the novel, reinvented the novel multiple times in Ulysses. Um, what is left for a writer to do? Come up with some new way of reinventing the novel? Even then, you're still copying Joyce to some extent. You can't escape the shadow. <laughs> yeah, it's some way, see, he owns the novel. However, people did uh, take inspiration from him. Faulkner, for example, um, took what he was doing and used it to really successful ends, like The Sound and the Fury. And then after Faulkner, maybe was a, a wave of postmodernist writers who really played with it, who gave up the kind of serious political historical concerns that someone like Faulkner had and uh, write something that's really an engaging game. Someone like Italo Calvino, for example, um, or John Barth. Um, and after that, it, it sort of, there was a, a kind of return to a, a more refined literary fiction style, you know, where writers used often stream of consciousness. Um, that became a kind of, has become a, a really important uh, narrative mode for novelists. I think one of the big achievements of Joyce's writing is to establish ordinary people as worthy of attention, prolonged attention and, um, you know, engaged attention so that um, there is sympathy for, for pretty much everyone, um, even dislikable characters. You, you, you get enough texture of their experience to sympathize with them. And I think that this democratic structuring of the book is extremely influential. Um, you know, the idea that uh, people are worthy of attention. They don't have to be heroes. They don't have to look like heroes to be worthy of attention. And that, I think, is profoundly influential. Most of the time, human life is unremarkable, dull, and confusing. But Joyce shows that with the right eyes, the ordinary is miraculous. The mundane is extraordinary and partly because life is a constant process of death and rebirth. Each day is unique and ephemeral. Ourselves and our relationships, our neighborhoods and our cities, 
are always in flux, always in a state of both passing away and becoming new. Ulysses' maybe lasting influence is the idea that everything can be remade, that a novel can be reshaped and reshaped multiple ways, that the world itself can be reshaped, and that people are being reshaped all the time, some more actively than others, um, some who you know pay more attention to their own processes and their engagements with the world. But Ulysses is a book about reinvention. So that is very difficult, it's challenging, but it brings with it a huge amount of excitement of, of the new and also of what is there in potential. Writ Large is produced by Jack Pombriant and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Farron Dew. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of Lit Hub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. You can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.